By God's grace, we have come to the end of another calendar year. It's a blessing to be able to end the year gathering together for worship. We don't get to do that every year on the last day of the year, having it land on a Sunday. But it's always a blessing when that does occur. I don't know about you, but personally, I find it hard to believe that year is coming to an end. I feel like I'm just getting about used to writing 2023. <laughs> and here we are at 2024 already. I don't know if I'll be able to start saying that tomorrow or not. It will probably take me about 12 months to, to get where I say 2024, and we'll be back right here again, won't we? Now, I'm sure as we come to the end of the year, we'll look back over the year. That's one thing we do. And, and we'll find that 2023 has been filled with a mixture of good times and hard times. We've had joyous times and we've had sad times. That's the way a year tends to go. And I would anticipate that 2024 will be somewhat similar to that. That we can anticipate there'll be some happy times and some hard times. So even though tomorrow when we get down to it will be large light like today, if you think about it, the sun will come up about the same time it came up today, even though we can't see it today. And we may not be able to see it tomorrow from what I see on the forecast. We have this gray gloom that continues Tomorrow will be largely like today. There won't be a lot of difference to it. If, even though that's the case, still in our minds, we enter a new year. And it's natural if that happens for us to spend some time pondering various aspects of life. We tend to do that as we come to this transition point that, that marks the calendar year. We think back on, on changes that have occurred this past year in the last 12 months, and, and we look forward to anticipate what might come in the future. Take, for example, the Smith family. A couple of them are up there, some over here. They've got a lot of things they're pondering at this time of year. They've just celebrated a wedding in this past week with two more coming up in the next few months. A lot of things going on. Mom and dad probably have slightly different feelings about that than the, the kids have, but there's a lot of anticipation of the future. For others, there may be events that, that are coming up that rather than be anticipating excitement and, and happiness, maybe there's a, some dread coming up. I know people have some surgeries approaching, and, and those probably bring a, a variety of mixed emotions. Maybe you're contemplating a job change in the next few months. All these things can bring different emotions. Whatever it is, as we hit this point in the calendar, we all tend to do some assessments. As we turn the calendar from one year to another, we, we assess where our life is at. Often, those assessments result in personal resolutions. It's somewhat of a joke, right? New Year's resolutions, it's time to make resolutions. It's a joke because our follow-through on those resolutions tend to be a little less than good, um, generally. Uh, I watch one humorous blog writer quite often. I read her. She closes a week every Friday. She has a, a blog. And this past Friday, she wrote, In past years that have drawn to a close, I felt compelled to offer a few New Year's resolutions. I will forego that this year for a couple of reasons. First, it appears that in the words of the great late Jimmy Buffett, and I'm growing older, but not up. My metabolism rate is pleasantly stuck. So my traditional resolution to lose weight is clearly not ever going to happen. No, not ever. And furthermore, as far as any other efforts at self-improvement, I'm a stone's throw from 80. 
it would seem that this is pretty much as good as I'm going to get. Sound familiar maybe to a few of us? Uh, I can appreciate that kind of honesty at least. Uh, at the same time, it is worthwhile for us to assess our lives, to look back at where we're at and to figure out where do we need to make some adjustments. Can we make some improvements? As we'll see in our psalm this morning, assessing our lives in a regular fashion is something that God both approves of and even encourages. This morning, after taking a couple of weeks off for Christmas, we're coming back to our series through the Psalms. And we're looking at the third book of the Psalter, if you're visiting with us. We're in the middle of that here. And, and providentially, we're coming to a psalm that appears to have been used at annual times in Israel, very much like our New Year's. We can think of this as a New Year's psalm. Much of the life in, in ancient Israel revolved around a religious calendar, an annual set of religious festivals. And from a religious standpoint, their, their main festivals occurred in the seventh month of their calendar year. It, it was the year that these, or in the middle of the year, calendar-wise, these festivals hit. But for many people, this was considered the beginning of their religious year. They looked at this as the start of the year. On the first day of the, the month, a ram's horn would blow throughout the land. That would signal that this is the beginning of the month and that ram's horn served as a call to assemble in Jerusalem. Then, on the tenth day of the month, the assembly would begin. They'd start with the Day of Atonement that would be celebrated. On the fifteenth of the month, that would be followed by the Feast of Tabernacles. Both of those festivals were to be celebrated nationally as the country assembled in Jerusalem. That, that set of celebrations generated a festive-type atmosphere throughout the nation. Daily work would be set aside because they were on vacation. Sound familiar for many of you this past week? Some of you probably had to work, but some of you probably were off on vacation. And you gathered with family. It was a festival time. That's what this is as we come to this psalm. I bring these details out because I want us to place ourselves in the sandals of the Israelites as they gathered for the celebration. We likely have had times to celebrate this past week. Tonight, hopefully we can anticipate gathering with family and friends. We'll have a gathering here in the church to gather together at Usher in the new year. Our, our mood today should be much like the mood of the people to whom this psalm was originally addressed. If we can recognize that parallel, that should help us hear what the Lord is saying in our psalm this morning. Maybe you've already made some resolutions for the new year. Maybe you've already made those resolutions and, and recognized in the back of your mind that you'll break them by two weeks from now. Maybe you're resolving with real intent to improve. Perhaps you're looking at your diet in determining, I will do better next year. I will exercise more. Maybe you're resolving to complete a project. Maybe you're resolving to read a number of books. But what are you resolving to do to improve your faith? What are you doing to improve your relationship with God? In our psalm, the Lord is addressing people who have just completed from a religious standpoint, one year, you're moving into another. 
in this address, we can find three expectations, three requirements, if you will, that, that God gives to the people of faith. Things that faith requires. First, faith requires, in the first five verses, assembling. Faith requires assembling. Now, this psalm is one place where, unfortunately, a verse division is placed into our Bibles that, that frankly, could have been in a better spot. The, the last line of, of verse 5 would be better served to have been included in verse 6. So, so that's what we'll do this morning. We'll break it before the last line of verse 5. Sing for joy to our God, our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Strike the timbrel. The sweet-sounding lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, for it is a statue for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. He established it for a testimony in Joseph when he went throughout the land of Egypt. The psalm here begins with a rising shout. I appreciated how Dale read our last psalm of, of the Psalter this morning because, again, it's that rising cry. Here it begins with this shout, sing for joy. That, that's a call to lift up their voices together in praise to God. Now, something that I very much doubt that we would ever catch in, in our translations, we have two things against us, our translation as well as our knowledge of the Old Testament. So it's unlikely that we would catch this, but it should have resonated with the people of Israel that this call, this first word, this sing for joy, as we have it translated, was first heard in the well-known Song of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 32 of the Song of Moses, a very famous song for the Israelites. And the, that the first time this word is used is in that psalm. It's, it's found in verse, thir, uh, verse 43 of that psalm. As part of the final words that Moses left before his people, he'd, I don't know, we can imagine he spent 40 years in the wilderness composing this song. It's the last thing he left for them. And as part of that, he encourages the people to praise the Lord, to sing for joy. And now that word is echoed here by our psalmist as the first cry. Take a moment and look at the string of imperatives in the first three verses. Sing for joy, shout joyfully, raise a song, strike the timbrel, blow the trumpet. These are commands given by God to the people. All you have to do is look at those and the impression that you have is that he's calling them to exuberance. There's no lackadaisicalness in, in anything that we're seeing here. There is to be an emotional joy. That's obvious. You know, the, the Pentecostals have a lot of things that, frankly, I'm convinced are wrong about their worship. But one thing that we could learn from the Pentecostals is that our joy should show when we worship. Why is it that we so often appear bored when we're singing about the grace of God? Why do we look disinterested when we're hearing the people around us sing about the saving work of Christ? There should be nothing that interests us more than the fact that Christ died for us. He came to earth to give us a hope. Where's our joy over our God? Let me point you now to verses 4 and 5. 
these verses make it clear that the gathering for worship is something that God has determined his people will do. Worship is not a matter of personal preference. It's not a matter of convenience. It's not a matter of doing it when it feels good to do it. It's a matter of obedience or disobedience. Disobedience or obedience? Which way will you respond to God? Because God is commanding us to gather for worship. At the very same time, these verses are telling us that God established Israel as a people for his nation. The reference there is to when he rescued them and led them out of Egypt. When they were formed up as a nation, at that very same time, God established that they were to assemble themselves to worship him. Think about this for a moment. This is not a requirement that God puts in place so that the people can meet with him. God is omnipresent, right? He's everywhere present. Wherever we are, we find God. We don't have to go somewhere to find God. We can find God anywhere and everywhere. No, God commands this because we need to assemble with each other. We can't find each other everywhere. We have to actually physically come together to find each other. This is a command where God has appointed time for his people to gather with one another, uh, one another so that they could join together praising him. I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. We live in a country that prides themselves on independence, individualism. We can worship God as we want, where we want, when we want, because we're Americans. God wants us to gather together. With the coming of Christ, some things have changed by our celebration. For example, Christ's birth and death and resurrection, those are more significant to us than the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So we gather on Sunday now, the Lord's Day, when he rose from the dead, rather than celebrating a day when he rescued the people through passing over the firstborn of the nation of Israel. What has not changed is our need to assemble to praise God. In fact, the New Testament is filled with joint gatherings of praise, just like the Old Testament. We have God reiterating the requirement that we are not to forsake the assembly together. Gathering for worship is a requirement of our faith. Let's jump back now to the topic of resolutions. Have you resolved to assemble for worship. Is worship on your list of New Year's resolutions? Is your personal weekly schedule arranged around our corporate times of worship, or do you fit it in when it's convenient? Do you ensure that you have plenty of rest on Saturday night? And I'll mention one particular individual that told me he did not have enough. This is in my notes. I didn't pick you out. Do you ensure that you have plenty of rest on Saturday nights so that you can worship joyfully? Do you get up early enough so that you arrive in time to settle your thoughts prior to our assembly events, what we call our service? Faith requires assembly, so let me suggest a resolution for you. 
In light of this requirement, that faith requires assembling, here's a resolution. Now, you may want to word your resolution differently, but maybe you should have something like this. Let's go ahead and put it up there. Resolved. Unless providentially hindered, I will worship with my church family every week in 2024. Furthermore, I will prepare mentally and physically weekly for my time with my fellow believers in Christ so that God is honored. I'll read that again. Resolved. Unless providentially hindered, I will worship with my church family every week in 2024. Furthermore, I will prepare mentally and physically weekly for my time with my fellow believers in Christ so that God is honored. Is something like that in your resolutions for this coming year. We see in our psalm, reflected throughout the rest of Scripture, that faith requires assembling. Are we resolved to do that? Are we going to be obedient in 2024? First requirement, faith requires assembling. A second requirement that we find in the next several verses here of the psalm is that faith requiring requires remembering. It requires remembering. Picking up at that last phrase of verse 5, where the pronouns you can see shift to I because God begins speaking now through the psalmist. I heard a language that I did not know. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Mirabah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their hearts to walk in their own devices. Now, that last line there, verse 5, is hard to understand. As I point out, we have that shift to the first person, so we know God is speaking. And the rest of the verses that are not as difficult all show us that, that God is referencing his rescue of Israel from Egypt, that, that great exodus. And he also points to several negative events that surround that. Events in the wilderness. So the last line of verse 5 is probably part of the same. God's reminding the people that repeatedly he was good to their ancestors. But the ancestors responded to his goodness with grumbling and disobedience. Last verse 5, last line, there's probably a, a reference there in verse 5 to the golden calf incident. While, while God was giving Moses the law up on Mount Sinai, the people engaged in false worship. They, they were speaking a way that God did not know. They were worshiping in a manner that did not match what God had told them to do in worship. In fact, they worshiped a false god, claiming it was the true God. Time and again, through the wilderness experience, the people turned away from God. The fact that God had just rescued people from their burdens of slavery in verse 6 did not keep them from their sin. Yet, verse 7 points out, when they cried out to God for forgiveness, God forgave. Mount Sinai was one of the early failures for the nation. 
the people did not listen as God was speaking to them. Mirabah's mentioned, well, that comes up later in that pilgrimage that they had in the wilderness. God spoke at Mount Sinai at Mirabah. He did not speak. He was silent. Would the people trust that God would meet their needs? Mirabah is the place where they grumbled because they were lacking water. God had been giving them manna now daily for quite some time. If God was able to give them manna and as well as quail when they needed it daily for their food, surely they could expect God to provide water. Yet they grumbled. They grumbled that God had abandoned them. Another failure in the wilderness. Verses 8 and 9 remind the, the people as they gather for their festival that, that God established a covenant at Mount Sinai. Verse 9 there, or, or verse 8 rather. Verse 8, hear, my, O my people. That, that reminds the people of well-known Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Verse 9 then, then paraphrases the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. And, and together this sums up the, the law that God gave to his chosen nation. Verse 10 goes on and reminds the, the, the people that, that God had proven his ability to care for them. They could not meet their own needs in the wilderness, but he's met their needs before. And he'll meet that again. He, he's bringing this up as the people gather for their festival. Remember what your ancestors experienced. Yet what happened? Over and over, Israel failed to obey God. Ultimately, God gave them one of the, the greatest judgments he could possibly give his people. He allowed them to have what their stubborn hearts wanted. He gave them the stubborn desires of their hearts. In verse 12, the, the word that we have translated there, he, he gave them over to the stubbornness of their hearts. That gave them over, that's the same word that God used for sending Adam and Eve from the garden. God punished the people by sending them away to their own stubbornness. I want you to think again about family reunion. After all, as I said, these festivals that the Israelites were experiencing, they'd have that family reunion feel to them. Last October, Grace and I were in Kansas City and we had a, a family type reunion there as we gathered with my, my brother and my, my father and, and uncle and some cousins. Well, the uncle I'd not seen in probably a decade since I'd seen him last and my cousins had been more than two decades. We spent the day catching up, sharing with each other what happened in our lives in, in these intervening years. Now, probably this last week, many of us did something similar as we got together with family. If, especially if it was family we don't see on a regular basis, extended family. We caught up on what's happened over the past weeks and months. Let me ask you, how much time did you spend remembering what God has done for our forebears? As, as you spent time with family members, did we ask them, Ask the older generation especially. Give us some stories about how God has shown his goodness. Have we considered his goodness and his faithfulness in our lives? For, for that matter, have we reflected on 
all of the many failures of this past year even, as we gathered, the times where we have failed to obey God? Have we stopped to consider the possibility that, that some of the problems that we've endured this last year, some of the hardships that we brought in, might simply be because God has given us what we want. God has punished us for our disobedience by giving us our desires. Faith requires remembering. Allow me to propose another resolution. Again, you might word it differently, but here's another resolution. Resolve. I will schedule time this coming week to reflect on my spiritual failures in 2023 and determine what I can do to avoid repeats in 2024. Furthermore, I will take time to write my plans down so that I can review them throughout the year. Good intentions are so easy to have, right? But to actually put them in writing so they stick with us. Resolved, I will schedule time this coming week to reflect on my spiritual failures in 2023 and determine what I can do to avoid repeats in 2024. Furthermore, I will take time to write my plans down so I can review them throughout the year. Faith requires remembering. That is the second requirement of faith that comes out of our psalm today. Requirement number three. As we close out the psalm, we see that faith also requires trusting. After all, that is the definition of faith, right? Faith requires trusting. Verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him, and their time of punishment would be forever. But I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Now, I'll spend a few minutes working our way through these final verses here. Verse 13 begins, God expresses his concern for his people. Hear the, the emotion there. Oh, that my people would listen to me. Despite the fact that, that Israel repeatedly ignored and God and disobeyed him, God still loved them. God still yearned for them to change. Now, any of you who are parents sitting here today can surely relate at some level to that emotion. There have been times that your children have disregarded your advice and frustrated you. I don't even ask, have they done that? They've done that. Still, that, that doesn't change your concern for your, your children. When, when you see their stubbornness and you watch them heading down a path that you know is going to cause them to end in heartache, you know there's going to be a, a mistake made. Even if they're only small children, you know this mistake is tiny. You know it will hurt them. And your thoughts are, if only they would listen to me. Yet even as they're getting themselves into repeated difficulty, there you are standing by, willing and waiting to help. All they have to do is acknowledge their foolishness. All they have to do is ask, and you will step in and help. God expresses that desire here for his people. His desire that they would obey him, and he quickly adds, if they do, he will come quickly to their rescue. 
If their people will just show a willingness to obey God, he is there for them. He will come to their rescue. He knows what is best for them. That's why he gave them the laws he gave them. It wasn't to limit them and and make their life difficult. It was to do what's best, to give them the best. God now is letting them suffer in their stubbornness because that's how they can learn what he knew was best. Yet God has not abandoned his people. They're still his people. He is still there. All they have to do is walk in his ways and he will instantly step in. In fact, God emphasizes that he will come quickly to rescue. One of the fundamental problems that we can see hinted to here in verse 15 is that the people are lacking discernment. Look there at verse 15. There are those who really hate God, but they're pretending to obey God. They're they're, they're giving lip service to piety while really living unrighteously. And apparently the people are following the lead of these unrighteous hypocrites. The the people in general, they're blindly accepting the, the unrighteous fakers. They're, they're, they're blindly believing that these fakers are being accepted by God, ignoring the real, reality that God has promised those who disobey him will face eternal punishment. Doesn't that sound like our country? Doesn't that sound like the American church? Uh, I, I think it's safe to say there are far more people living in America who claim Christianity than who display any attempt to live according to God's word. They're fakers. According to God, they're fakers. Many people even claim they're Christians while refusing to accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. I'm Christian, but I don't need Jesus. They, they've created some fairy tale Christianity, something that, that doesn't even remotely resemble what God has said, and for that reason, listening to God is not at all part of their life. Walking his ways, that, that's not even considered whenever it, it comes down to a matter of doing what God has said will mean that I'm living in a way that is contrary to our culture affirms. That's the sad reality of our day. And yet, what's concerning to me is when true Christians those who have truly accepted Jesus Christ as Savior fail to discern and reject these fakers. Rather than than call out these people as, as being false Christians, these fakers are accepted as people to emulate. We're going to live like so and so because that life seems a whole lot easier than this Bible thing. And they're Christians, right? What a confusion that creates. This confusion has touched our church. Maybe it's even touched your your family. The only way to have salvation is faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. The evidence of that faith is the recognition that he now owns our lives. We must do what he says because he's our master. He's our Lord. That's what Lord means, Master. He's our Savior. He owns our lives. We're going to do what he directs regardless 
of how out of step that is in our culture. That's the true sign of a Christian. Let me ask you, do you need to reevaluate, reevaluate your life? Do you need to reevaluate whether you have saving faith or not this morning? Do you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you truly accepted him? Do you need to reevaluate, are you following Christ? Are you following fake Christianity that's so popular in America? God is clear. Those who have fake Christianity will face eternal punishment. Don't be a faker. By contrast, God assures us that he will provide rich blessings for his people. Now remember, I mentioned the the psalm rather began with an echo of the Song of Moses. The very first word, sing for joy, came out of the, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Well, the psalmist ends with two final echoes of the same Song of Moses. That, that phrase, the finest of the wheat, comes from Deuteronomy 32.14. The phrase, honey from the rock, that's Deuteronomy 32.13. The, the point that, that God leaves with the people gathering to worship him is that he will bless them in the same way he blessed the nation at his very beginning if they will only trust and follow his ways. Herein lies another challenge for us. We need to trust God rather than our own desires. We need to trust God rather than our own ideas. God has promised his blessings on those who will trust him. It's so much easier to say we trust God than to actually do it. Probably one of the earliest verses we lived if we were blessed to attend Sunday school as children and we were able to memorize easily back then. One of the earliest verses we probably learned was Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on what? Your own understanding. We can quote that verse. We can quote that verse easily. We're probably pretty good telling others what they should do too. And yet time again, we look around and we find ourselves drawn to things we want to do, our own ideas, rather than the things we know we should do. We find ourselves responding in a way that meets our desires rather than God's word. I've said it before, I'm sure I'll say it again, Lord willing, if he gives me time to keep proclaiming his word. Our problem is usually not our lack of knowledge of God's word. Our problem is doing the parts of God's word that we already know. Of course, part of knowing what we already know is that we're supposed to keep studying God's word, so we never know enough of it, but we need to do what we already know. We see unrighteousness prospering around us, even though we, have, we know that God has said prosperity of the unrighteous will not last, we want to follow the lead of the unrighteous people. We want to have a life that looks like their life, has all the things of their life, things that money can buy, things that ease and entertainment can give us. We know God has promised to bless us if we trust him. 
Yet the immediate difficulties we face when we do what God has said causes us to doubt God and to trust our own devices instead. Rather than praying that God would bring the finest of the wheat and the honey from the rock, we look for ways to squeeze a little bit more wheat and honey out of our own bank accounts through our own efforts. I think it's time for a third resolution. Faith requires trusting, resolved. I will display a pattern of life in 2024 of doing what I know God has said to do in his word regardless of the outcome that I expect my actions will bring. Furthermore, I will find a fellow believer who I will ask regularly to evaluate my execution of this resolution, knowing that I'm prone to self-deception. Again, you might word it differently. If you're like my wife, you'll word it a lot shorter. She says, I am always long. I will display a pattern of life in 2024 of doing what I know God has said to do in his word, regardless of the outcome that I expect my actions will bring. Furthermore, I will find a fellow believer who I will ask regularly to evaluate my execution of this resolution, knowing that I am prone to self-deception. Faith requires trusting. I challenge each of us to make a resolution to put trusting into action this year. Because unless there's action behind it, we are not trusting. We've seen three requirements of faith in our psalm. Assembling, remembering, and trusting. Likely, there's work for us to do in all these areas. At the same time, we should not enter this new year being discouraged. God doesn't give this psalm to discourage. This is for people coming to celebrate. This is being an uplifting psalm, a psalm of encouragement. In fact, down at the corner, you see the title I put on our sermon. The reason I entitled this sermon, The God of Patience, is because while we have all failed, God does not give up on us. God is a God of patience. That's the point he's making in the psalm. God binds himself to us. He binds himself to us by placing us in Christ through faith. God is for us, not against us. What we need to take with us from this psalm as we go into a new year, what we need to carry along into new years, the overall lesson of the psalm. As we step back, the overall lesson is simply that faith requires resolving to obey God in all of life's circumstances. Again, simple idea, right? Faith requires resolving to obey God in all of life's circumstances. Simple idea to understand. But it will take us a whole year and then some to put into practice. One of our fundamental challenges as I've indicated several times in this series through the Psalms, is that God frequently places us into circumstances where we have to live by faith. We cannot see how doing what God has said will work. In fact, it seems as if obeying God will put us into a greater bind than we're already in. Sure, we we know that God defines faith as, as the conviction of that which is not seen. 
But we want to see before we leap. I'm sure that 2023 is filled with failures for all of us to live out our faith. But God is patient. God is patient. He knows that it takes time to build our faith. So God will undoubtedly give us opportunities in 2024 to try again. To live by faith. To obey him when we cannot see how that will help us. Faith requires resolving to obey God in all of life's circumstances. To help us obey God in all life's circumstances, I suggest these three resolutions for us. Three resolutions based on the requirements of faith that, that we found in our psalm. So let's review those again. Faith, first of all, requires assembling. We, we must obey God in all areas of life, including then our assembling. Resolved, unless providentially hindered, I will worship with my church family every week in 2024. Furthermore, I will prepare mentally and physically weekly for my time with my fellow believers in Christ so that God is honored. Requirement number two, faith requires remembering. We must obey God in our remembering. So resolved, I will schedule time this coming week to reflect on my spiritual failures in 2023 and determine what I can do to avoid repeats in 2024. Furthermore, I will take time to write my plans down so that I can review them throughout the year. Faith requires remembering. Number three, faith requires trusting. We must obey God in our trusting. Resolved, I will display a pattern of life in 2024 of doing what I know God has said to do in his word, regardless of the outcome that I expect my actions will bring. Furthermore, I will find a fellow believer who will ask regularly to evaluate my execution of this resolution, knowing that I am prone to self-deception. Faith requires trusting. Faith simply requires resolving to obey God in all of life's circumstances. So as we enter into New Year, as we go into 2024, let's rejoice that, that God is patient with us. Let's rejoice that we have a patient God and resolve that we will obey our patient God in all of life's circumstances. Father, I thank you again for the end of the year you've given us, where we can look back and see your grace, we can see your mercy, we can see your faithfulness, and Father, above all, we can really see your patience. As we enter a new year, we enter it with hope, knowing that you will be there for us again, that you're always there. So, Father, I pray that you would help us all now to enter this year with resolutions to obey you, to be resolved in the areas that will help us to show our faith more clearly. Help us to magnify Christ. Help us to display what he has done to the world around us through our joy and our obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.